0: TUC Radio, Time of Useful Consciousness Conversation between Brian Eno and David Graeber Hosted by Archangel at the Royal Geographical Society London on October 7, 2014. Even though Brian Eno and David Graeber both had become internationally famous by 2014, The musician, visual artist, and culture critic Brian Eno, and the professor of anthropology, author, and co-founder of Occupy Wall Street, David Graeber, had not yet met in person. And here, thanks to the creative concepts of Art Angel, they met on stage for an improvised conversation. Art Angel is a London-based arts organization. Since 1985, they have commissioned and produced notable site-specific works in unexpected places, plus several projects for TV, film, radio, and the web. Michael Morris is the co-director. Here he is introducing Brian Eno and David Graeber.
1: For the past decade... Artangel has invited two leading cultural thinkers, aware of each other's work, but not having met, to conduct a public conversation with no fixed agenda, to excavate the urgent issues of our time and how these might best be addressed in the interests of the long term. It gives me particular pleasure to introduce tonight's pairing at the Royal Geographical Society, a place long associated with exploration and a need to understand the world. Brian Eno is an artist and cultural catalyst, creator and producer of some of the most distinctive and influential music of the past four decades. As a visual artist, he's pioneered new ways of auto-generating sound and light, most notably in 77 million paintings and counting. Brian's interest in long-term thinking led him to help establish the Long Now Foundation And he was also part of the think tank set up by Jem Finer and Art Angel in the 1990s that developed Long Player. David Graeber is a social anthropologist, activist and writer who the New Yorker has called the most influential radical political thinker of the moment. The newly appointed Professor of Anthropology at the London School of Economics and Political Science, David has written widely about gift economies and value systems, magic, and the legacy of slavery in Madagascar, the Occupy movement on Wall Street, and has famously reflected on the history of debt over the past 5,000 years. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in giving a warm welcome to Brian Eno and David Graeber.
2: When you were doing Occupy in New York, I, I actually came there with my girlfriend. We, we came and sang, We Shall Overcome, I believe it was. No, something like that. Uh, something very traditional and folky, uh, with Laurie Anderson as well. And what would have been your hopes for Occupy? Could it have carried on longer, do you think?
3: I think so. I think that what happened with Occupy was, the short version is, I. I feel that the right wing radicals have a much better allies than the sort of moderate right or the mainstream right in America than radical left has allies with, with the mainstream left. I mean as soon as anybody threatens Second Amendment gun laws. You know, the entire Republican establishment goes crazy. They, you know, they don't like those militia people. They think they're insane, but they want them around because it makes them seem like a reasonable alternative. Mm-hmm. And, and and the Democratic, you know, the Democrats have not learned this simple lesson that you know you can't. Betray your radicals on policy issues if you've already betrayed them on existential issues. Like you know, so if they got as excited about the First Amendment as the Republicans got excited about the Second, we'd still have been there. But they assumed that we were going to join the political process and become sort of left-wing Tea Party. And so for a while, suddenly there was insane media. I've never seen anything like it. Um, you know, um, so somehow there was a huge amount of attention to things that people normally ignore. And when people or, actually see it, they become excited, and people came down to join us, and um, there were occupations all over America. And, and as soon as it became clear that we weren't actually going to become a political party support candidates, so our position was that essentially, the U.S. is not a democracy in any meaningful sense, it's become a system of institutionalized bribery. So we really meant by the 1%, are not only the people who get all the profits from economic growth, they're the people who make all the campaign contributions, so practically 99%, 95%. Eight point five, I think, of it. So essentially, they—they're people who've managed to turn their wealth into political power, and their political power into the means of acquiring new wealth, largely by reducing the entire population into debt. And essentially, the laws that regulate the banks are now written by the banks, and it's all designed. So, finance capital. You know, finance is just other people's debts. It's all manipulated. So we weren't going to join the system, because joining the system, which is a system of bribery, is like saying, well, you know, if you want to get rid of the system of bribery, you need to raise more bribes and compete with the other people. And, you know, obviously that wasn't going to work. Uh, but when they realized we were serious about it, suddenly, you know, after this pressure, there was this complete media blackout. So I think that um, in terms of what happened, I think what could have happened was what's happened in other places, which is a broad delegitimation of the system. Mm-hmm. The example I always take is Argentina. This is what we were aiming for. The one ace we have in the whole, most Americans, um, you know, everybody loves democracy, but everybody hates the government. You know, this is why I'm an anarchist. Uh, or anarchism is just democracy without the government. Um, so you wonder what do they mean by democracy, right? Because you hate politicians, you're suspicious about the government, but you love democracy. In a way, we thought we were in a great tradition trying to create these modes of direct democracy. And it's not because we dreamed that we could instantly, you know, the government would dissolve away. Obviously, that's not going to happen right away. But um, you want to create a broad movement whereby the growth of that kind of popular power could itself sort of force the political class to address real people's concerns just to re-legitimate themselves. We thought the real ace in our hole we had was everybody hates politicians. Everybody um, assumes they're all corrupt bastards, um, accurately enough. So, so the Argentina model was the one that seemed most plausible. What happened in Argentina, most people don't know how the third world debt crisis actually ended. And partly it was uh, after the um, Asian crisis of 98 But the key moment was Argentina's default. And uh, essentially, there was an economic crash, a series of popular uprisings that overthrew three governments in a row. But rather than try to create a new government, they essentially said their slogan was Que se todos, you know, they can all go to hell. All politicians are bad. Um, we're just going to cr- run things by ourselves. They created popular assemblies took over factories or worker-run factories. Uh, they even tried to set up an alternative currency and economic system. Um, just completely ignored the existing political class. And it got to the point where, and this is I think the key revolutionary moment that we, one has to achieve. Um, the moment when politicians can no longer go to restaurants but Argentina got to oh, the that.
2: that would be a great thing. Yeah, right? <laughs> um, they would
3: have to like, put on false nos- mustaches and things like that and be able to go out to eat, because otherwise people would throw food at them or yell at them. <laughs> and, um, I, so- I
2: only wish that could happen to, even if it only happened to Tony Blair, I'd it's
3: be very to pleased. happen in Greece.
0: Um,
2: anyway, so, so when you get to that point, the government has to do
3: something. And they had Nestor Kirchner, who was a very, very moderate social democrat, Realize, okay, to re-legitimate the political system, we've got to do something radical. So they defaulted on the Argentine debt, um, Mm -hmm. which sent ripple effects across the world, which effectively ended the third world debt crisis. So in fact, that rejection of the government, that refusal to operate within the terms of the government, rather than make policy proposals, propose our own new party or candidates, but just say, to hell with them all, actually cause the politicians to do something you never would do otherwise, which is of enormous benefit to mm. the planet as a whole. So that was the kind of model that we were pushing for, a dual power model where the very existence of this alternative would itself also simultaneously provoke the politicians to actually address people's concerns. So, I mean, we found that when the camps were operating, we had a common project. We, yeah, we had different visions of the sort of end point, but mm-hmm. we knew we were on the same path and people mm-hmm. cooperated extraordinarily well. Then after the violent suppression of the camps, then it all came out and everybody started hating one another
2: again. Really? Why, you know, why do you think the violence produced that? Well,
3: partly because there was no immediate thing we all had to do. You know, if you create a camp, you're creating a community. There's food that has to be produced, there's cleanup. There's there's so many different things you need to coordinate mm. and you, you also see people regularly. And this is one reason why, why virtualization has very pernicious effects. It's, um, there are certain topics that in most social movements I'm involved with, we always say, do not discuss this on the internet, do not discuss this on Twitter, anything having to do with racism, sexism, because you just operate differently when you're looking at someone than, yes, than when they're yes. not there. Yeah.
2: Sure. Sure, yeah, um, the, the big difficulty on the internet is anonymity, I think that, that really was the big mistake when, when I was first on the internet before it was called the internet, when there were five thousand people on it, <laughs> really We, we yeah. all knew each other 's names, yeah. so this was in the mid '80s you know okay. um, and so that people moderated their behavior because they, they knew they were identified. Mm. Uh, I, I just want to make another quote from you. I think I've got this right. You said in one of your things, capitalism is just a bad way of organizing communism. Yes, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Which I, I think is very neat and I like very much. Um, my first wife was the secretary of the British communes movement um, for 10 years. So, and she, she lived in communes and I lived in a couple with her uh, early on. And one thing that I noticed after a while is that actually every political system works at a small enough scale. Mm-hmm. So, we saw communes that were anarchists, some that were communists, some that you could call anarcho-syndicalists, some that were sort of um, authoritarian, mm-hmm. some that were like Mormon, you know, right. patriarchal, yeah. that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And what impressed me was that the, the system had no relationship to whether the, the name of the system had no relationship to whether the commune worked or not. Mm. Um, so, I started to think then about scale as being a consideration mm. in, in these, in, and it's never, it's never taken seriously as a consideration. We talk about political systems as sort of absolutes. Mm. Um, so, you know, Margaret Thatcher was the, mm-hmm. the great example of somebody who tried to extrapolate from the corner shop to, right. the, to the whole economy sort of thing um, and look where it got us. Well,
3: that's an interesting question because I often get the line that, well, you know, all of this democratic stuff, it could work with a small group of people, but you know, the moment you get to a city, or let alone you know something larger than that, it would never work. And it is true that you know, if you want to do things democratically, it's sensible to keep things on as small a scale as possible. But at the moment, I'm actually, you know, I have written this book on 5,000 years of debt. I'm actually now working on a 20 or 30,000 year scale for my next one. I'm working with an archaeologist oh, friend. more like it? Um, yeah, um, I'm working with an archaeologist friend on this, uh, named David Wenkrow. I think is in the audience. Um, and. Um, This is one of the points you want to address because it's actually quite surprising um, what you see if you look at history. It's not necessarily the case that the larger things get, the more you need to have authoritarian structures. Um, You can't have the same structures on a large scale as you do on a small one. But um, there's lots of examples, for example, of, of egalitarian cities, the first thousand years of Mesopotamian. Urbanization. Yeah. We have no signs of social inequality or social class. The Harappan Indus Valley civilization, same thing. Um, there's whole cities like Teotihuacan where all the houses are exactly the same size. Everybody says, well, there must have been a king. We just haven't found him yet or where he would live. But you know, <laughs> there had to be. It's a big city. You know? But um, in fact, the evidence seems to imply that um, egalitarian large scale systems are not that hard. Often because on a very large scale, there aren't that many things that have to be decided. On the other hand, it's really hard to find examples of egalitarian families. Mm-hmm. So you know, maybe that commune size you can do, but mm-hmm. often you have to do it by, by radically eliminating or transforming you know, family structures. You know, in fact, we're, we're tempted to come, start talking about inequality from below. Mm-hmm. You know, we need to look at the structure of the family and for long periods of time, you know, there's gender inequality, age inequality, but on, even on a very large scale, fairly egalitarian relations can be maintained, and inequality sort of creeps up from that micro level uh, to involve know, everything. Um, yeah. Do you know that
2: uh, guy, Robin Dunbar? Do you know his Oh, one? Dunbar's Number. Yeah. Dunbar's Number. Yeah, so for those of you who haven't heard of it, Dunbar's Number. Um, Robin Dunbar was looking at um, cerebral cortex size in primates, and he found that there, there was a very strong correlation between the size of the c- cerebral cortex and the number of creatures that uh, the the number of other creatures that a particular animal would associate with so our nearest relatives i think are baboons aren't they something like that um they they have a cerebral cortex which is about uh, 40 percent the size of ours and their group size is about 40 percent the size of ours they they associate with about 60 other creatures um baboons to say our group size is about 150 to 160. we can't have close relationships with more than that number of people. Yeah. So this, this is, I think, what makes any kind of politics work at a small enough mm-hmm. scale. Because actually, what really works to make societies cohere is not laws or those kind of policy agreements, but honour and shame. Mm. You know, the thing, the thing that makes social groups cohere is either the feeling of being cast out of them or the feeling of being mm-hmm. thought well of in them. That, that makes a very big difference, and so what happens when, when groups get larger is that you, you either have to federate, so you have lots of small groups who talk to each other as groups,
3: mm-hmm.
2: or you um, start to think about legal systems. Legal systems effectively replace honor and shame, actually. They're, they're the codified version of um, honor and shame, I guess. There's also modular, sort of extendable
3: versions of personalized relations you can establish. You know, So sort of the famous Middle Eastern tradition, of when you
2: buy something, first you have to have tea, and then you can argue with each other.
3: Yes. Yes. yes <laughs> so yes. there's like micro versions you can do.
2: Yes. So I, I guess what you're doing when you have tea is you're trying to establish a relationship mm-hmm. where honor and shame can operate. Are relevant, right. Yes because honor and shame clearly don't operate if you're never gonna see the person again.
3: Uh, I I wrote a book on value theory, and and one of the things that really fast realized is what value is all about is is about an audience. Um, You you need to realize forms of value, but it's, it's irrelevant to realize them in the eyes of someone else. And in fact, for any person, society are those people who care that you got whatever it is you're trying to get. You could probably create a whole social science starting from that inside. You know, what are the things that you think are important to achieve in your life, and who do you care knows whether you did it or not?
2: Yes. Um, So
3: everybody in this room has a different sort of virtual body of people who they want to know that they got something or didn't get something, or they Mm -hmm. care what they think, and another body of people who it never really occurs to them to even
2: wonder what they think of them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There's a very beautiful story in. that Garrett Hardin book called Managing the Commons, mm-hmm. about a religious group called the Hutterites. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the Hutterites were uh, a European, I think Germans originally, who, yeah, they who went to America to start, to, to live their religion properly. And they, in some very interesting, intuitive way, arrived at this very peculiar and elaborate process of establishing communities, which is that about 10 years before they estimated a community was going to reach about 150 people, hmm. they would buy a piece of farmland somewhere else. And the whole of the, what's called the mother community would start building houses and barns and whatever else they needed on that community. And they, didn't, they knew that half of them in 10 years' time were going to split and go there, but they didn't know which half. So they're all building, oh, they're all building the sister community which is usually close by, you know, 20 miles away or something. And they're building it as though they might live there. There's a 50% chance that they will live there. Um, sort of like cutting the pie in half and then having the other person select that's right. which one they want. That's you, you divide, you <laughs> yeah. choose. Oh, yeah. Exactly. And then they had this very peculiar ceremony. The night before the split, the whole community would pack all of their stuff ready to leave hmm. for, the, for the sister community. The whole community. Everybody would pack everything. And then during the night, the elders would pull straws or whatever they did. They had some suspiciously semi-random process by which they would decide who (laughs) went to the new community. And so this this was, I thought, such an interesting set of intuitions that Mm -hmm. you you first of all set up a situation where you recognised that there was a, a, a community size limit but then you invented a process by which the host, the mother community, would really care about the the Mm. daughter community by um, Mm -hmm. making sure that they actually built it, you know.
3: Still that's fascinating and and, and they use a random selection. Which is another thing, I think, actually, when we're talking about problems of scale and Mm -hmm. how to transform egalitarian relations, randomness is, I think, very, very important. When people say, "Well, how do you choose representatives?" Um, you know, if you're trying to scale up directly democratic uh, structures, I, I pondered this for a long period of time. But um, one of the more interesting insights I encountered was that, well, for much of European history, the idea of voting was considered the aristocratic way of, of choosing people, to rep, uh, uh, officials, mm-hmm. magistrates, representatives. Because you know, it's, uh, aristoi means the best, uh, aristocracy is rule of the best. The idea is you take these guys who already considered themselves the best and you choose which one is best of all. And it's not that different than you know, Homeric warriors sort of assembling followers or Vikings or Mongols. Or, um, it's the same kind of system. Whereas the democratic way was, was random lottery Mm-hmm. So, um, the idea is anybody could become a magistrate, you give them basic literacy, sanity test, or something like that. And, you know, so if you want to do it, throw your name in the hat, and they pull a name out. Um, and there's a lot of people who are talking about reviving that. Um, I, I remember Occupy Athens was one of their big suggestions. They were pointing out that no matter how bad the crisis got, less and less registered people vote in Greece. Yeah. It can't be because they can't care. Uh, it's obviously because they're rejecting the very idea of a representative system. So they were suggesting everybody who does, who's registered but doesn't vote should be counted as a vote against the principle of representation. Yes. And, and those parliamentarians should be chosen by random lottery.
2: Yes, <laughs> uh, I, I think that's a very good idea. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I wrote a letter to some newspaper a few years ago suggesting that the House of Lords should be randomly chosen. There you go. Because, <laughs> you know, we were having all these arguments about whether there should be a House of Lords and so on and so on. Do they
3: still get the titles?
2: Yeah. Oh that be <laughs> yeah, for the duration of <laughs> for the duration of their their time in Parliament. But um, I, I think that could be very, very interesting because one of the great surprises of life is how incredibly responsible people become if they're exactly. trusted.
3: Exactly. What's the basic principle of anarchism and this is why I find it convincing is is that the basic principle of anarchism is that when people act like children mostly it's because they're treated like children. But it becomes a vicious cycle. You know, we're used to the idea that people act like children and therefore we treat them like children. But if we stopped, you know, a few people still would, but most wouldn't. And there's no way that There's really no way to get people to act like adults that works other than treating them like adults. And um, we have this idea of the block. Most anarchist groups operate by a consensus principle, and people assume this will never work, you know, because anybody can veto a proposal. Um, it has to be based on some moral principle. It can't just be, I don't like it. But um, if you feel there's something terribly wrong, you know, it's like everybody's the Supreme Court, or you know, has the right to, to and you know, everybody says, well, that'll never work, because you know everybody will block all the time. Uh, and in fact, what we usually get in these groups, um, again, there's a problem of scale here, is that nobody ever does it. And we have a problem that people don't block enough, because it's like you're giving everybody a little bomb and saying you can blow up the thing at any time. And, and everybody suddenly feels, you know, I I feel so good about myself joining with the popular will, even though I don't think it's a very good idea. Mm. I could stop this at any time, and then they don't do it. Mm. Yeah. They become super responsible.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, we we both have anarchist backgrounds, actually. Oh. We are both working class anarchists originally. Uh, uh, that was sort of my first political interest. I didn't yeah, know that. Yeah, yeah. When I was. Fourteen. I used to sell a magazine called Anarchy.
3: That's correct. Yeah. In,
2: in in Woodbridge, Suffolk. <laughs> <laughs> to the to the bewilderment of. Do you get any buyers? <laughs> I used to. My uncle used to buy one. <laughs> yeah, that was a it was a lonely job at the yeah. time. <laughs>
3: I actually came to anarchy because of my family, and not that they were anarchists, but, but um, my father fought in Spain in the international brigades, and of course the international was very much propagandized against the anarchists, uh, but he lived in Barcelona when it was run on anarchist principles. How and long did that last? About two years before the Stalinists shut it down. but. He said it was rem- the remarkable thing was again. This is actually where the bull jobs the idea really comes from. What the major thing the reform that, that the anarchists did is they simply got rid of white collar workers, and they discovered that it didn't make any difference. <laughs> yeah, the trains still ran more or less as much on time as they always did. The factories still produced goods. They just sort of sort of had workers do shifts, doing all those jobs, and it worked quite well. Um, the phone company became the government, in fact, the phone company union workers. So as that people would call up and say, "I want to speak to the government." And and say, I'm sorry, we don't have a government, you know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I'll answer your questions. <laughs> yes, but, we'll, oh, do you need tanks? Well, we'll direct you to a car factory, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> I mean, it was a war, so it made it easier. So he knew that this could work. Um, and I always say that most people don't think anarchism is a bad idea. They, they think it's insane, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Obviously, that would never happen. Um, but, you know, I didn't grow up in a family where people
2: thought it was insane
3: because they'd seen it work, you know. Yeah. So
2: if, if it's not crazy, why not be one? Well, and, and the funny thing is everybody has experience of it working at small scale. And that's the, the, what I mean by the, the everyday communism. Yes. Yeah, I mean, we all do communism all the
3: time. If it's all, it just means from each according to their abilities to each according to their needs. Actually, what I discovered you know, um, with the Occupy movement is that Americans, for example, are, are much better at communism than they are at democracy. Everybody has, you know, experience participating in a communal project where things are allocated according to from each, according to their abilities to each, according to their needs. That's what you do if you're trying to fix something, if you're trying to get a task done together. But you know, when it comes to getting together in large groups and making a collective decision, no one had ever done that. Yes, yes. (laughs) That we had to like, learn slowly and painfully from the ground up.
2: If, If you could change one thing about American politics, you're allowed to make one one law. Oh God! What would you do? Uh,
3: I would actually go back to the uh, First Amendment and actually make it law. You know, it says in the First Amendment, "Congress shall make no law abridging freedom of speech or freedom of assembly, or of the press." Um, and in fact, you know, there's nothing but laws abridging. They say, "Well, of course, you can have freedom of assembly; you just need to get the." cop's permission first, you know, (laughs) Um, and it's like, uh, you know, you just try to talk to American journalists and point this out, like, well, you know, if you have to ask the cop's permission to say something, that's called not having freedom of speech, right, (laughs) you know, to print something. Uh, So why is it different with assembly? So, well, there's traffic problems, you know. There's no, there's nothing about right to traffic flow in the Constitution. There is something about right to freedom of assembly. <laughs> um, so I'd just say enforce that law, and I think the rest we can take care of ourselves.
2: Mm-hmm. Okay, well, thank you very much. Um, and thank you for coming. Yeah, thanks so much.
0: You heard excerpts of an 80-minute conversation between the musician and visual artist Brian Eno and David Graeber, professor of anthropology at the London School of Economics, author and co-founder of Occupy Wall Street. Since then, the name of David Graeber came again to international attention in 2021 when the book he co-authored with archaeologist David Wengro was published. The title is The Dawn of Everything, A New History of Humanity. Sadly, David Graeber died only weeks after finishing the book on September 2, 2020, at the age of 59. Brian Eno is active as ever and has since added an inspiring collaboration with Janis Varoufakis and Roger Waters. They meet on Zoom monthly, joined by other members of the group Let's Talk It Over, to discuss politics and navigate resistance. This event was hosted by Art Angel at the Royal Geographical Society London on October 7, 2014. You can hear this program again for free on TUC Radio's website, TUCradio.org. Look at the newest programs or the podcast page. My name is Maria Gelarden. Thank you for listening.